The General Alfred Mouton statue has been taken out of downtown Lafayette, but what's the history that led to it being erected in the first place? I'm your host, Alfred Jones, and today I speak with political science professor Dr. Rick Swanson about some of the darker history of Lafayette Parish, and some of it may surprise you, now on 10 Talks Acadiana. 10 Talks Acadiana, the podcast powered by KLFY.com. Well, hello, Acadiana. You're watching the 10 Talks Acadiana podcast, and today we have a very, very special guest with us, Dr. Rick Swanson, political science professor at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. And Dr. Swanson is here to talk a little bit about the history of Lafayette Parish. Now, over the past few years, I personally have been seeing your name uh, a lot when it comes to speaking about the dark past of Lafayette Parish. Now, of course, present day we were recently the happiest city in america mm -hmm. uh we have festival international i mean throughout acadiana everything is celebrated i mean down to rice you know so one important quote that i've heard you say throughout your presentations is if we don't know our past then we're doomed to repeat it and that's mm -hmm. why today we'll talk a little bit about the dark history of lafayette parish and a little bit about how that has played a role in our current community. Mm -hmm. So if you could start, I know you're, you're, you're the expert here, so I kind of want to hand the reins to you. Where, where, how far back do we go when we talk about the dark history of Lafayette Parish? Well, we go back to the founding of the parish. Mm -hmm. If not before then, before the official legal founding of it. Mm -hmm. That if you're just looking at the dark history, then you have to look at what happened to the Native Americans that were living here who are almost entirely either killed, mm -hmm. died of disease, or enslaved themselves. And then when the slavery was barred of Native Americans, the African slavery really took over, mm -hmm. and that grew through the founding of the parish in the 1820s up until the Civil War, mm -hmm. and by 1860, people of African descent actually made up a majority of the population of Lafayette Parish. When we go to the Civil War, uh, of course, there's kind of been some, I guess, smoky interpretations of the, the reasoning of the war. Uh, in your TED Talks podcast, which we'll talk a little about that later, uh, what, what do you call it where they try to change the reasoning for the war? Well, they themselves gave it a name. They called it the lost cause of the Confederacy. Mm -hmm. And the Lost Cause movement tried to rewrite, when you said smoky history, it was actually a false history oh. that they wrote, <laughs> mm -hmm. where they completely tried to conceal the fact that the war had been about slavery. Mm -hmm. And I encourage the audience, by the way, and I, I tell this to people whenever I give talks, go look at the Library of Congress Chronicling America website. It's a free database of, of newspapers going back all the way to the early 1800s. Mm -hmm. You can read actual digital scans of those images, and you can page, go page by page through old newspapers in Louisiana and all across the South. And what you see in the months leading up to the presidential election and the months immediately after Abraham Lincoln's election, you see all the Southern white leaders unanimously said the reason that they were leaving the U.S. 
and forming a confederacy and being willing to fight to preserve that confederacy was they feared that Lincoln and his fellow Republicans would end slavery. That they did not believe Lincoln when he said he was just gonna limit slavery's expansion. They, they said, we do not trust him. We think that the limit of the expansion is just the first step to the abolition of slavery. And the only way we can preserve four million people as slaves is to leave the US. And that's what they all said. Now, of course, that's not a very good narrative to tell, especially when you lost the war. So after the war, especially in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, the, the Southern history books were completely rewritten. And it was actually mandated, for example, the Louisiana Board of Education, the State Board of Education, would not approve any school history books or even literature books that had narratives, for example. N uh, no history books were approved that told anything other than this false narrative, where they in this narrative, the Confederacy was on the good side, they weren't fighting for slavery, uh, they were justified in leaving for states' rights, even though those states' rights are never specified. <laughs> uh, slavery was good for everyone, the slaves were happy. I mean, it was a completely fictional narrative that was told. And all the Reconstruction violence mm -hmm. that occurred was either completely hidden or it was justified as uh, you know, uh, corrupt black-led government, and the whites then retook in, uh, their governments back, and it, they redeemed the South. And so it was a complete fictional narrative. Yeah. That's where I was gonna go next to Reconstruction, because that, that brings us to another important topic that uh, just recently took place in Lafayette Parish with the removal of the Confederate General Robert Mouton's statue in downtown Alfred Lafayette. Mouton. Alfred Mouton. Yeah. Yes, sir, excuse me. Um, with Reconstruction and following Jim Crow South, how did that play a role in not necessarily prolonging slavery, but with the social injustices and inequities uh, for black people in Lafayette Parish? Well, you have to understand that whites justified slavery on this theory of white supremacy, that if you're, you were of European descent, you had light skin color, there was something that made your race superior. And if you had any African descent in you, your skin color was darker, you were literally inferior, you had less intelligence and you deserved to be owned and ruled. So that theory didn't end with the end of the Civil War. The South lost the Civil War, the Southern whites did, but they still had that belief in their racial superiority. And so during Reconstruction, as the U.S. government tried to create a, a system of racial equality through laws in the South, Southern whites violently rejected that, that attempt to create a racially equal society through laws. And so after about 11 or 12 years of that, the rest of the U.S. just got tired of having troops occupying the South and trying to enforce these civil rights laws, the civil rights amendments that had been passed after the Civil War. And through widespread systematic terrorism, Southern whites then, once the US withdrew troops out of the South and stopped enforcing civil rights laws, widespread systematic terrorism by Southern whites then stopped blacks from voting. All the Southern whites were able to get back into power. In many cases, those who had been like Confederate generals and Confederate right. leaders went back into power. And then by law, once they had retaken political power, reimposed white supremacy by law, short of slavery, because slavery had been outlawed, but everything short of slavery. And that led to 100 years of Jim Crow. And when, when we talk Jim Crow, when we, we talk about the, uh, the, the erecting of these Confederate general statues, mm -hmm. there was some uh, a hidden message there, if it's hidden. Well, it wasn't hidden at the time. <laughs> I mean, because it, the notion was 
the South, the Southern whites have been fighting for the concept of white supremacy during the Civil War. And again, you see this in all their speeches and writings. Because for them, it wasn't just about slavery. When you read their speeches and writings, they said, look, if slavery is abolished, that's just the first step. Because the next thing the U.S. government is going to do is create racial equality. And they're going to allow blacks to vote. And they will allow blacks to serve on juries. And they will allow blacks to marry whites. And that would be the ultimate horror, they said. And so for them, it was like a line in the sand that if slavery is abolished, that's going to lead eventually to full equality. And so for them, the, for Southern whites, the fight during the Civil War and then the fight during Reconstruction was just a continuation of that fight to maintain white supremacy. And so they glorified the leaders of that fight for white supremacy through erecting monuments to those leaders. And sometimes they were the military leaders of the Confederacy, sometimes they were the political leaders. And in the case of Alfred Mouton, he was one of the military leaders, at least the, the biggest uh, leader of the highest rank that came from the local area. Gotcha. And so he was sort of a local hero to the Southern whites at the time. And by 1922, when his statue was erected, you know, if you had asked those Southern whites about did Alfred Mouton ever commit widespread atrocities against black civilians, they, would, they had no idea about that because all that had been deeply buried by the Lost Cause narrative. So we're seeing Confederate monuments be removed throughout the country. Mm -hmm. uh, I know you have some affiliation with Move the Mindset, uh, who had a very big push to get the statue removed in, uh, in downtown Lafayette. Do you know if there is any effort to rename streets, uh, parishes in Acadiana? I'm not aware of it, but I, I'm actually not a member of Move the Mindset, Correct. but I've helped them by giving them presentations mm -hmm. and giving them a lot of information, uh, historical information. Mm -hmm. And so you'd have to ask them if they, uh, you know, what their next uh, objects or mission. But I know their mission broadly is, and I don't want to speak <laughs> for them, but their mission broadly is to educate the public. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, you'd have to ask them. Okay. So uh, when we get back to Lafayette Parish, um, let's talk about inclusion. Uh, mm -hmm. You have, and I'm not sure if it was your idea, but I've seen uh, in your presentations where uh, there is a, another version of the Acadiana flag where we include uh, the Western African population who contributed to uh, the founding of our region. Well, can you tell me about that? Well, it's kind of complex. The Louisiana legislature really made the issue confused because they took the flag of the ethnic Louisiana Acadians and then decided to use the, an identical copy of that flag to also represent a, 22, a legally defined 22 parish region in Louisiana in the early 70s. So there are two flags that look identical but mean very different things. One is a flag of an ethnic group, one is a flag of a region. And I had suggested that, you know, leave the ethnic flag alone, but instead of having an identical flag to represent a region, why don't we make a new flag for South Central Louisiana? that is more inclusive instead of, of just one particular white ethnic group. Now, I got a lot of, of flack from that, uh, but I think people didn't understand. They thought I was trying to change the Cajun flag, which I wasn't. It was the identical-looking regional flag that I suggested be more inclusive. Mm -hmm. And it's been a few years now, and looking back at that, I really think that, you know, once you start putting symbols of ethnic groups, whether it's the Cajuns or West Africans or whatever, people of West African descent, mm -hmm. into flags, you're sort of giving a preference to those groups. Now, our region, as most of the U.S., is becoming more ethnically diverse all the time. Right. 
And so I don't think it's really appropriate to put ethnic symbols into a regional flag. If you want to be inclusive, I think the flag should have just some general symbol or symbols that represent everyone. Uh, otherwise, you'd end up putting a hundred or, or a thousand different right. little symbols in there, and it would, it would just be a mishmash, and it violates the principles of good flag design. So I don't know what uh, a flag should be. I think there's lots of people in the audience who are you know, great graphic designers and imaginative, and you know, I've, I've thought maybe something like a variation of the uh, International Festival, Festival Swirl, uh, could be used for a new regional flag or something, but again, I, I leave that to our, you know, your viewers to come up with some designs that would yeah. be inclusive of everyone instead of, and in fact, I'm not aware of anywhere else in the country where a flag of a region actually the symbols of it were specifically designed to represent only one particular ethnic group. Mm -hmm. So it's a very unusual flag in that regard. Okay. And again, I'm not talking about the Cajun flag, I'm right. talking about the regional flag for Acadiana, separate and apart from the identical looking mm -hmm. Cajun flag. And again, that's why the legislature caused all this confusion. Right, okay. Not trying to erase one culture, just one to be more inclusive to everyone. Right, right. because for example, you know, Cajuns can fly the Louisiana Acadian, the you know, the Cajun flag mm -hmm. and be proud of it and proud of their Cajun heritage, right. but I'm not Cajun. Mm -hmm. Now there's this, another flag for uh, Louisiana Creoles of color, mm -hmm. but I'm also not Creole, I'm also not of color. And so that's two particular ethnic groups. What about Germans <laughs> and Scandinavians and Vietnamese and Native Americans? I mean, there's a lot of other groups in South Central Louisiana that aren't Cajun and aren't Creoles of color, and so why don't we have one flag that represents everyone? It's sort of another example of the leftover segregation from Jim Crow, that we even have segregated flags. We have a, a flag that white Cajuns fly, and we have a flag that black Creoles of color fly, but all the other white groups and black groups that aren't either Cajun or Creole, they don't have a flag. We don't have a unified regional flag, except a flag that by design, again, people can look it up, the elements of the, the Acadiana flag only represent Cajuns, and that's it. Okay. Okay, well, we're going to take a short commercial break, but we'll be right back with more from Dr. Rick Swanson. You're watching the 10 Talks Acadiana podcast. At Go Auto, we know car insurance can be expensive, but it doesn't have to be. Go Auto helps you save more money on car insurance. Call 888-566-5505 to get your free quote. So how do we do it? Well, that's easy. We have no commission agents, no expensive add-ons, low down payments. You can customize your payment plan and you choose your payment date. We've lowered rates in your area. So call 888-566-5505. Go online at GoAutoInsurance.com. Come by or you can download our app to get your free quote and start saving today. Welcome back to the 10 Talks Acadiana podcast with Dr. Rick Swanson joining us today talking about the history, the not so pleasant history of Lafayette Parish. But as we said earlier in our conversation, if you don't know your history, you're bound to repeat it. That's the importance of our talk today. So let's go into some of the lasting effects of slavery, uh, uh, Jim Crow South, how is that affecting our community still in the year 2021? Right, and that's one of the key points of my talks, is that this is not just history. This history deeply affects us today, not just in Lafayette Parish, but all across the country, and even around the world. Yeah. The, the past affects today, and it affects the future. And so, 
it, for example, I wouldn't say it's so much slavery. Slavery caused Jim Crow, or the, or the attitudes that led to slavery led to Jim Crow. Mm -hmm. And really what we're suffering today is the effects of 100 plus years of Jim Crow. Mm -hmm. So for example, the policy in Lafayette Parish, Louisiana, and across the South, and even some of the northern cities and states, was to hold back black economic achievement, hold black educational, educational achievement, really just almost not allow it at all. Mm -hmm. So you have 100 years where white families were able to get good paying jobs and accumulate wealth in, yeah. in homes and businesses that wasn't allowed if you were black. So now we had the success of the Civil Rights Movement in the, in the mid-1960s, and it made the playing field equal, but the problem is white families had generated enormous wealth Such over the prior 100 years, yeah. black families did not, and so you have this intergenerational wealth gap, which we still have today. For example, if I give you $100, I give somebody else $500, and if you invest that equally, that other, that other person will always have, for infinity, five times as much wealth as you. Now, I don't know what the answer is. I don't have the solution. I'm not an economic expert. I'm not a financial expert. All I'm trying to do is point out that the wealth gap we have today between whites and blacks is left over from Jim Crow. And there's other things, for example. <clears throat> in my presentations, I point out using Lafayette Parish as a as a, a case study. The city of Lafayette enacted a segregation ordinance in 1923. Now they quickly repealed it because whites of some, a few whites that were caught inside the boundaries that were supposed to be defined only for blacks objected, so they repealed the boundaries. But those boundaries had already been set in writing. Banks knew to follow it, who to give loans to, who not to give loans to. White homeowners and renters knew who to rent to and who not to. to. And if you look at the racial demographics of our city today, you still see the concentrations of the black population in Lafayette City that very much maps on to that segregation ordinance of 100 years ago. And then when you have segregated neighborhoods, because most schools' attendance zones are based on, on neighborhoods, then that means that as a, as a result, you're going to have some schools that are predominantly white and some that are predominantly black, some almost exclusively white, some almost exclusively black. Now Lafayette Parish has gotten better about that over time, but there's still some schools that are predominantly white, predominantly black, yeah. and that's left over from the neighborhood segregation, which is left over from Jim Crow. Mm -hmm. So you see, it's like dominoes, that you have just all of these lingering consequences from Jim Crow. Mm -hmm. And again, I don't have the answers, I wish right. I did. If anyone had the answers to this, <laughs> right, Congress would be dealing with it right now. I mean, I think, the thing that gives me optimism is that all across the political spectrum today, people acknowledge that these disparities exist and right. they acknowledge that this is uh, not fair. Yeah. And, but then the problem is we disagree about how to solve that. But at least we agree that it exists and agree so, that it's a problem. Yeah. And now the question is, okay, so now we're at least on the solution mm -hmm. stage. How do, we, how do we solve it? And if the solution was that easy and clear, we would have agreed on it by yeah. now. And it's just a shame when I see people fighting about this because we all want the same thing. We want to live in a fair world, and it's just about how do we get there. Yeah, so there, there's, been, there's been progress, uh, maybe not consistent, uh, and of course not as fast as anyone would like, uh, but there has been some progress, and of course I think that, that is a reason to be optimistic for uh, people in the situation and those fighting to eradicate it. Mm -hmm. um, Lafayette Parish as a whole, or I should say the entire Acadiana region, um, the, the, the makeup, the demographic of these people, or of, of us, uh, 
pretty even uh, as far as the population of whites, blacks? I mean, generally, if you look across South Central Louisiana, whites are about two-thirds to three-fourths of the population now. Okay. Because basically what happened during Jim Crow, historians refer to it as the Great Migration. Mm -hmm. Because the, the situation economically, educationally, uh, criminally was just so oppressive mm -hmm. against the black population that to try to have some better chance at, at success in life, lots of families and individuals fled the South to go yeah. to northern and western cities and right. states. I, I so, asked, yeah. I'm, excuse me, oh, no. I, I asked that to, to follow up with, is that why we would see such differences in affluent neighborhoods as opposed to uh, one of those communities that, that was uh, designated for black families in the 1920s? Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say it explains it 100% because mm -hmm. I think life is really complex. Right. And, and this is where I differ, you know, some people today claim that any racial disparity is purely a result of racism or a racist policy. But I think life's more complex than that. Of course. That, uh, you know, there's some things, chance and luck and some choice and some cultural issues. Mm -hmm. But at least, and I think we could all agree, at least a significant component of the current racial disparities in our world today are a result of past discrimination. And I think that's pretty clear. Okay. And so, Let's take, for example, after the Civil War. Mm -hmm. After the Civil War, uh, people who had been slaves had literally zero education and zero wealth, because both of those were legally prohibited. Mm -hmm. Yet the white plantation owners were allowed to keep their homes and their land. And they have passed that on, at least the ones who, who kept it in their family, have passed it on from generation to generation. You can tour some of these homes, and some of them are still in the families, and they make a lot of money. I mean, they have these fancy homes and the land, and they, their wealth is left over from wealth that was gained during slavery. Right. And yet those same workers who'd been enslaved, they got nothing, and Jim Crow prevented them from getting anything. And so, again, I'm, I, I don't know what the solution is, right. but in some cases you can find that, yes, the wealth gained by some people uh, still today was gained through this inherited wealth. In other cases, there were opportunities to acquire wealth like business owners, for example. You could acquire a large regional business if you were white and, and you would have a lot of customers. Mm -hmm. If you were black, it was almost impossible for you to have a large regional business, right. especially with the oil and gas boom, for example. And so it's not because you were white that you gained that wealth, but those similar opportunities were denied to blacks. Right. And so that wealth disparity, in some cases, is still resulting from the opportunities were denied to blacks during that, that period of Jim Crow, which was in existence during a good part of the early oil and gas boom. So um, we'll try to put together a panel of some experts to find the solutions. Uh, what about you? What's next for Rick? Well, Working I Working on anything? Yeah, I, I wish there was 10 of me to go around because I just finished a textbook on law and legal reasoning and just submitted an edited volume to a university press that dealt with basically what we talked about earlier, just compiles hundreds of quotes by Southern white leaders where they say the reason they're fighting and leaving the US is all about white supremacy and slavery. And so now my next project I think is gonna be finally putting, and I had to get those off my plate because I'd already been working on them, but now I think uh, a lot of people have been asking me, me for a book that basically summarizes my research on Lafayette Parish history. But I think that really can't be told without looking at 
the broader region of South Central Louisiana, which itself can't really be told without looking at the context of Louisiana as a whole, because a lot of the laws that discriminated were state laws, right. not local laws. So uh, right now I'm trying to figure out how, I, how do I balance between telling the local history but bring in the statewide history, which puts everything in the context. And, right. and actually my problem is I have too much information mm -hmm. to go into one book and I have to decide how do I pare it down and do I make it for a mass audience uh, versus an academic audience. I'd like it for be, to be for a mass audience, right. but then I have to decide, well, so how much detail do I leave out? And, uh, but and basically that's my next project, though, to finally take everything that I've accumulated and basically take my presentations and put it into a book form. Okay. Well, folks, that's Dr. Rick Swanson with the University of Louisiana at Lafayette, but he has so many more titles. I told him, I apologize, <laughs> I can't remember them all, but he is a wealth of knowledge. And I'm we're just Rick. <laughs> He's Rick. Rick, we wanna thank you for being with us today. And uh, hopefully you. we'll have you back soon. Not maybe not soon, but well, we'll talk about your book. I'm always happy to, to help you. Yeah. Well, so, thank you, Rick. Thank you. And thank nice you all for watching the 10 Talks Acadiana podcast. 10 Talks Acadiana. Subscribe wherever podcasts are downloaded. A Nexstar Media Production.